0: Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Reweal as he continues his sermon series Life Together. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Thanks, Joe. If you guys have a Bible, turn to Romans 12 this morning. Open your devices, search bar Romans 12 i got to change my lingo up here. Keep up with you youngsters. We're going to be in Romans 12. I'm going to look at the first eight verses this morning. Actually, uh, next week we're going to be back. We'll finish up the rest of the chapter. So we talk about a new ministry that's starting up here at TBC this fall called Life Together. And just a reminder, if, if you guys are waiting for hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken, sandwiches, all this good stuff, just wait a little bit longer. John Landers is out on the grill, probably Patty, this morning. So they're, they're cooking up stuff now. I promise it'll be warm, but I'm gonna talk fast so we can eat quicker and get out there a little bit quicker. And also I have a underlying motivation behind this, this uh, quick sermon this morning, is so that I can humiliate all the middle schoolers in soccer and Reich, our job today is to basically just humiliate these kids and humble them down to earth and show them what's going on, how real soccer players do it, which I'm not one, but I'm going to try to be one for a little bit. And after that, I'm going to force Tom Granny down the water slide because he didn't bring me a New Life Ranch shirt this morning, but maybe next time you will, and I won't push you down the water slide. So we're going to go with Romans 12 this morning. Um, interesting thing happened to me. I went to College at the Mississippi State University, the Bulldogs. <laughs> SEC, yeah, that's, that's what we got. Uh, had a really tall, fair-skinned, red-headed roommate my freshman year of college named Rusty. And Rusty says to me, one of the first days in the dorm, he says, Jared, I've got something great for us in this little mini-fridge in our dorm room. I've stacked it with Cokes. And I was like, Rusty, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much for bringing Cokes to this mini fridge. And, and he opens the, the door to the refrigerator in the dorm room, and behold, there is Dr. Pepper, Sprite, Pepsi, Mountain Dew, but there is not a Coke on the shelf of the mini fridge. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, bro, I, I appreciate you and all, but why did you tell me that you got a fridge full of Cokes and there's no Cokes? And I guess in the South, this is like a thing. Right, If you're gonna have a Coke, you're gonna have a Mountain Dew Coke, or a Pepsi that is a Coke, or a Sprite that's a Coke, but they don't do this whole soda pop thing where I grew up from in Wisconsin. It's interesting how, uh, have you heard of the Cola Wars before? Kind of fascinating just in the last don't know, 50 years or so, maybe 40 years. Uh, Coca-Cola was always a, the flagship soft drink. It's like as American as apple pie. Uh, everybody knows about Coca-Cola. And they originally marketed their product with nostalgia. Uh, you would see the commercials of being very family-friendly, even cute figures. Santa Claus was a big mascot for Coca-Cola and the, the polar bears and the cubs, and everybody loves it around the holiday times. It, it's, uh, it's pulling you into to family values. Uh, pulling on the heartstrings to something that's traditional and ancient. And they dominated the the soft drink market for close to 100 years. It wasn't really until the mid-80s that their market share came to be threatened by an up-and-coming soft drink that had been around almost just as long as they had. Remember the Pepsi challenge? 1975, this is before my time, but I, I began to see it as I got to be a kid because the commercials ran so long. Pepsi did an amazing thing when they, when they launched the Pepsi challenge because they finally threatened the big dogs on top of the stage of the soft drink industry in Coca-Cola. And they did a blind taste test. You guys probably remember these commercials. Had a famous celebrity that would come to the table and there was a taste test of, of Coke and Pepsi. And what they discovered was that the majority of people, if you gave them this blind taste test, the majority of people actually preferred Pepsi instead of Coke. And then they invented Mountain Dew and and Diet Pepsi, and and they really infringed upon Coca-Cola's territory. And they had to do something, and they had to do something fast. So Coke made this unprecedented move, never ever happened before in the history of the company. My dad owned Coca-Cola stock his whole entire life. This is a a tried and true, you're gonna make money if you've got some Coca-Cola stock. But they did something different. They ditched their tried and true ancient recipe for Coke, and they invented, you remember what it was? New Coke. You guys remember this? Everybody started taking in this new Coke and trying it and sampling it. It was an epic failure. Three months on the market before they scrapped new Coke altogether, and they said, you know what? We're going back to our original design we're going back not only to Coke, but we're going back to Coke Classic. Meanwhile, Pepsi was having a field day with us. In fact, there was a Super Bowl in Atlanta, the headquarters of Coca-Cola, and the Super Bowl, you know, advertises Pepsi products way more than it advertises Coke products. And they were even saying like, hey, even Pepsi is celebrated here in Atlanta now. We've got the market share. There's nothing you guys can do. Coke begins to come back when they went back to the original recipe, but they're still fighting off Pepsi. Pepsi just keeps rearing their head, and they're really good at marketing to the younger generations. And so Coke thinks to themselves, okay, how do we get to do this? We, we tried this, it didn't work. Maybe the problem wasn't with the new recipe, maybe the problem was with how we marketed it. And so they wanted to market to reach younger generations and younger families, and so, you know what came out after that, right? Coke 2. <laughs> they ditched the recipe again and they tried it all over again. They ditched Bill Cosby, their spokesperson. They put him to the side and they had this like Miami Vice, slick back, blonde hair guy that looked like he was like virtual. He was the man of the future. He was the man for the next generation. And he was going to drink Coke 2. Coke 2 epic failure number two for Coca-Cola. It was terrible. It didn't, you can't find Coke two, you can't find new Coke on the market today because they were terrible. In fact, some people said that uh, the reason why Pepsi beat Coke in a t- taste test is because all it was was a taste test. If you drank the whole can, Coca-Cola was much better than the whole can of Pepsi. But in a taste test, Pepsi would win every time. It was, it's a marketing failure, people have been talking about it if you're interested in marketing, all that kind of stuff, don't do what Coke did the whole time. No matter what they did, no matter how they tried to reach a different demographic, they always tried to redesign the original. They tried to take something that was was proven, that was classic, and they were going back and forth and just redesigning it. And this morning I want to talk about, about Coke and I want to talk about soft drinks this whole morning, obviously. Um, but I do want to talk about a design. In the Cola Wars, Coke was, was obsessed with redesigning something. And I want to talk about not, not a Coca-Cola design, not a soft drink design, but a divine design. I want to talk about the things that God has designed us for this morning. Because he has designed us for a lot of things. Ultimately, he has designed us to be representatives of his glory, to be his ambassadors. He's designed us to to carry the gospel to those who need it, uh, to be imagers of Christ. But he's designed us for something deeper than that. He's designed us for a relationship, a relationship ultimately with him, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, just like we sang about this morning, but also a relationship with other people as well. And because God designed Christians for many things, and he designed us for friendships, he designed us for community, what I want to talk about for the next two weeks out of one chapter in Romans, Romans 12 is his design for us to do life together in the body of Christ. God's design for fellowship and for relationships in the body is a design for life together, to live together in relationships with one another. We're going to see it in Romans 12, 1 through 8. Before we get there, Andy Stanley's got a really great quote. He wrote a book called Creating Community, and he issues a warning. We're living at at a time that is unlike any other time in the history of the world, unlike any other culture in the history, in that we are more isolated than we have ever been before. As As a culture, as a society, we value independence, isolation, and individualism more than any other time on the face of the earth. And this sermon and this this concept of life together is more needed now than it has ever been before. Andy Stanley issues a warning to us. He said this, he said, sheep are rarely attacked in herds. They're almost always attacked when they get isolated from the flock. Life together, the body of Christ is here to prevent us and to protect us from the attack of the enemy. We can't do life on our own. We're not designed that way. We're designed for relationships in the body of Christ. And so that's what we're gonna see in Romans uh, 12 this morning. Romans, uh, before we get there, just a little bit on the context. Romans is one of the most logically put together books in all of the New Testament. In fact, business leaders use Paul's logic and structure in the book of Romans to explain organizational structures. Even at the University of Wisconsin, It's, it's amazing. Um, most liberal and crazy place on the face of the earth in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, Romans is typically divided into about five different sections. The beginning of the book, Romans uh, one and two, really into chapter three, verse 20. uh, Paul tells us who needs to be saved. The godless person, the religious person, everybody is lost without Christ. Everybody needs to be saved. Uh, Chapters three, end of chapter three into five, Talks about how to be saved, justification by faith. And then the Apostle Paul talks talks about how to live as saved Christians, Romans 6 through 8. There's a parenthetical section in the book of Romans, chapter 9 through 11, is is largely dedicated to understanding Israel and the church and how we've been grafted into Abraham's seed, to the root of Israel uh, through Christ and his death on the cross. And then we get to chapter 12, and really from chapter 12 on through the end of the book of Romans is just practical theology. There's a lot of commands, there's a lot of things that Paul wants us to do with the gospel that he's taught us at the beginning of the book. However, you can look at the book of Romans in another way, more simple way. You could also say that Romans one through 11 is all about the doctrines of grace, salvation, righteousness through Christ, how we come into the body of Christ in living that righteousness out and what God has called us to do. When you get to Romans chapter 12 now, he's gonna show us how to accept one another in love and live out this theology of the grace that he's been talking about for the first 11 chapters, which means Romans 1 and two is extremely transitional in nature. And it is extremely important as you understand the framework in Paul's thought as he works through the entire book of Romans. And here's what he says. Let's look down at the first two verses. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. God's design for life together in community means many things. Number one in your outline, it means at least this. If we're going to be a church that prioritizes and does life together well, all of us are going to have to renounce the self, deny the self. Paul called Christians to self-sacrifice to renounce ourselves based on the mercies of God in a transformed mind. And when you hear those terms, transformation, uh, mercies, uh, sacrifice, we almost always think there's some kind of mystical experience that's involved with this. The reality, however, is that renouncing the self is not marvelous as much as it is selfless. It's not as mystical as it is reasonable and actually spiritual. We're not left to our imaginations here when it talks about transforming our minds, our spiritual worship and acceptable worship to God. Paul actually gives us very definitive and concrete terms to explain exactly what those terms mean. But before Paul tells us about this concrete process, he comes to us as a pastor. And he begins in verse one and he says this, "'I appeal to you therefore.'" Now, Tulsa Bible Church, you guys who know your scriptures, you know Paul's structure, typically as he works through New Testament letters. At the beginning, there's a lot of indicatives. There's a lot of statements about the gospel and how it's working in people's life. There's a lot about our identity in Christ. At the end of his letters, he gets to a lot of commands. He tells us what to do with the information that he's taught us. And so let me ask you a question. When you get to Romans 12, verse 1, we expect there to be a command, We expect there to be an imperative. Where's the imperative in verse 1? What is the command that Paul is giving to us? The answer is, there is none. There is no command in this verse. He could have commanded, he could have said, you need to die yourself. If you're going to be walking with the Lord, if you're going to do life together with other Christians, sacrifice yourself daily. We hear about that even in the Gospels. But Paul didn't say that. Instead, he spends 11 chapters talking about the mercies of God. Finally, when he gets to chapter 12, he comes with an appeal, not a command. He says, I appeal to you. I beseech you. I urge you. I am begging you based on everything that I've just told you. When Paul commands, as he often does, he acts on his authority. When he appeals, he acts on his relationship. Commanding comes from boldness. Urging comes from love. And in love, the apostle Paul exhorts his readers to do what fits with their identity in Christ and what he has done for all of us through Calvary's cross. In other words, we've been recipients of God's mercies. Now, here's how our life should live. I'm not gonna command it. I'm not gonna beat you down with this. I'm just telling you the natural outflow of a heart that's been transformed by grace and mercy is one that is self-sacrificial. It's one that consistently denies ourselves. I have a seminary prof that that gave this illustration on the book of Romans. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I want you to imagine just as we were singing Holy, Holy, Holy this morning, Imagine that we're in the middle of that verse, and the voices are are high, the celebration is great, praising God with arms raised and voices loud. And all of a sudden, a terrorist walks in with an armed gun, with a bunch of other terrorists. Everybody's so terrified and fearful, we all just stop saying exactly and and doing what we are, and we just listen. And he comes and he says, my government has just taken over your government, and we are condemning all Christians to death. However, if one of you is willing to sacrifice yourself, I'll let everybody else go home this Sunday morning. you imagine that? Imagine what you would do? I imagine in this room there'd be quite a few people that would volunteer to give up their own life, because I know a lot of you. I imagine there'd be some motivations of, of people who would say, you know what? I'd rather just have a quick, death instead of living in a persecuted church era in the United States. And so I will gladly volunteer and everybody else can safely go back home. I bet there would be um, a great reaction. However, such a sacrifice that that person would make is nothing compared to the sacrifice that the Apostle Paul is calling us to in Romans chapter 12. That sacrifice is the sacrifice of a martyr. And the sacrifice of a martyr is a dead sacrifice. But Paul calls us to a living sacrifice. To be a martyr is to be sacrificed once. To be a living sacrifice is to be sacrificed over and over and over again. Every day, every step, every decision saying no to yourself, denying yourself for the sake of another person and for the sake of the glory of Christ. In fact, the sacrifice called for here is in the present tense, present your bodies. That means that it happens over and over again on a daily and a weekly basis. We give ourselves over to God and over to other people. But not only should this, this renunciation of self, this sacrifice be a, a living sacrifice, we're also called to be a holy sacrifice. And when many people talk about holiness, initially we think of uh, moral purity. And and there is aspects of holiness that tap into moral purity. Don't, Don't get me wrong; that's there. But there's much more than that. One of the very first times that you read the word "holy" in the Old Testament is Exodus chapter three. You remember what's happening? Moses, burning bush. Voice comes from the burning bush in the wilderness. Remove your sandals. That's exactly what it sounded like, right? This is holy ground. If holiness was distinctly moral purity, how could ground be morally pure? Ground can't be more more morally pure or less morally pure. But ground can be more holy or less holy. In fact, when you continue reading into Exodus, you get to the passages about the tabernacle, the instruments of the tabernacle, even the holy of holies the room that was designated to house the presence of God. Aaron and his garments were to be holy unto the Lord. How can garments be morally pure or morally impure? They can't, they're just garments. But they can be more holy or less holy. The oil that they were anointed with was holy oil to the Lord. There was a crown on Aaron's head that was a holy crown. The high priestly garments, everything that they were was was considered holy. Everything that they did and touched The grain offerings were holy to the Lord. Burnt offerings were holy to the Lord. Peace offerings, holy to the Lord. And rarely would we associate any of those things with moral purity. They're not not people. They're things. So what does it mean that our lives are to be holy to the Lord? What does it mean that we are called to be a, a living and a holy sacrifice? To be holy in the Bible means to be set apart. It means to be distinct. It means to be other, to renounce ourselves and to live holy lives mean that means that we should align our lives and our hearts with God who is completely holy. He is completely other from everything else that is common, secular, or worldly. Moral purity is, is certainly a part of that holiness, but it's, it's, it's just the start. It doesn't even get into the depths of dedicating our entire selves to set apart our lives to God for His glory. Renouncing the self means that we, we sacrifice ourselves, we deny ourselves daily, it means that we set our lives apart for God's use to be completely other, to be completely distinct. It also means that our lives are pleasing and acceptable to God. How do we know that what's pleasing to God in our lives? Hebrews 13 20 and 21, you might just make a cross reference. To that verse. It talks about God's will that He gives us grace to experience and to carry out. It's pleasing to Him when He gives us the grace to live in a way that honors and is dedicated to His will. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is thankful to the Philippians because their offering was a soothing aroma to God, it was pleasing and acceptable to the Lord because of what they gave, they gave of themselves. In Romans 14, just two chapters ahead of this, to be pleasing to God is to limit your freedoms in Christ for the sake of your brothers and sisters. That is pleasing to the Lord. What's pleasing to God is to serve one another, to love one another, to give ourselves to the other, to deny ourselves for the sake of another, What's holy, living, pleasing to God means that we have to take ourselves and put it entirely to the side for somebody else. And so here's what I want you to do. Look to the person who's on your right, look to the person who's on your left. Are you willing to put yourself aside to honor that person? Older generations, we look to you for leadership. Are you willing to put your preferences to the side and honor the younger generations in this room, and give them preference over yourself. Younger generations, look at all the older, silver-haired, gray-haired folks in this room. Are you willing to put your desires, your preferences to the side, die to yourself, and think about them instead of yourselves as we worship together as a body of Christ? If each of us thought less of ourselves and more of other people, unity in the Spirit of God would move in this church, not only in this church, but every other church that values other people more than you value yourself. That's the sacrifice that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Here's the second thing he's talking about. Not only renouncing the self, but renewing the mind. Verse 2, that verse that Joe read for us, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, Paul is giving us a, a negative and a positive in, in this verse, in verse two. There's something to avoid, and there's something to do. There's something to prevent, and there's something to produce. What that means is, if we fail to do one, we will also fail to do the other. If we neglect a part of this verse, we will not fulfill the entirety of this verse. Uh, Henry and I, have, Henry's our, our oldest son. He's uh, just about to turn 13. I'm, I'm about to have a teenager in the house. This, grannys, y'all help me out here. Man, Jones is as much help as possible. Uh, Henry's a great kid. We've been doing a Bible study mostly for the spring, a little bit into the summer about what it means, as he's approaching 13, about what it means to be a godly man, right? This is something that we can't take for granted in our culture. If I don't actively teach him what it means to be a godly man, he will passively absorb the wrong thoughts from the culture and the world around us. And so the definition that we've landed on, is it's not my own, it's something that I've stolen from Robert Lewis in in Raising a Modern Day Knight. And he says this, there are four qualities of a godly man It says, a godly man rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects a greater reward. If you're going to be a godly man that follows Christ, you reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and accept a greater reward. Now, here's what this means for Romans chapter 12. All of us will be passively conformed to this world if we're not actively renewing our minds to discern God's will. If we're not active in the process, the world will be active for us, and we will passively absorb the culture and the society around us. If we're not actively renewing our minds to discern God's will, if we take this passively, we will actively be conformed to the world, regardless. The goal is, is to renew our minds daily with God's word. And, and every time I've taught on Romans 12, one and two, at least a handful of times now, every time I teach it a little differently. And the thing that stood out to me a little bit more than it ever has stood out to me before, this time in studying this week, is a little word in verse two. And it's, it goes something like this. By the renewal of your mind that by testing, does your text have, you may discern, right there? you renew your mind that you might be discerning, might harbor the characteristics of a discerning person. And frankly, I'm blown away by this culture and this society's discernment level. Whether it's social media, whether it's the news, living through life with wisdom. Proverbs is all about fearing the Lord that will lead you to a life of discernment, to understand wisdom. Beginning is the fear of the Lord. To walk in that wisdom and understanding is to have discernment. Discernment is is multifaceted in Scripture. It's not just making choices. Discernment is not only discerning and distinguishing between that which is right and wrong, it's also distinguishing that which is primary and that which is secondary. It also includes discerning the essential from the non essential, the permanent from that which is temporary. We have a really hard time in our culture determining the things that are significant and understanding what's insignificant. It's not only making decisions that are from better to worse, but it's also making decisions between what's better and best in our lives. Discernment means this. It means distinguishing between and recognizing the difference in specific courses of actions. It's seeing consequences for those actions before we make decisions in the first place. I love how Sinclair Ferguson defines discernment. He says, biblically, discernment is learning to think God's thoughts after him, practically and spiritually, and having a sense of how things look in God's eyes, making decisions that will ultimately please him. Discernment produces many things. Discernment protect, protects us from being deceived, spiritually, with wisdom. Discernment helps us to see the heart issues from those issues that are at the surface and what's coming out. Discernment serves as a catalyst to Christian freedom. What areas of life do you have freedom? What areas of life are pretty clear not to do this or to do this? Discernment produces Christian maturity. Discernment aids in conflict resolution. I love how one man put it. He says, discernment is the ability to see things for what they really are, not just what you want them to be. Discernment is the ability to see things for what they really are, not just what you want them to be. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said this, discernment is not just telling the difference between right and wrong, but telling the difference between right and almost right. That takes a lot of spiritual maturity. It's only gonna happen if our minds are renewed continually in the word of God, reading his will. That is clearly displayed for us in the pages of scripture. If you are looking through social media, use discernment before you post something. I wouldn't have said that the last time I preached on Romans 12:1 and two. I'll say it again. If you are looking through social media, use discernment before you post something. If you're going on social media, use discernment on how long you need to be on there in the first place. How many hours are wasted every day scrolling through Facebook and Instagram trying to see the next picture, the next hot thing? Use discernment in your life. I can think of a thousand other things that might be a little bit more healthy for your Christian life, for some Christians. Do you hear things on the news that are radically controlled by leftist media? Use discernment before you believe wholeheartedly everything that people say. Mark Twain had a great great quote on discernment. Remember what he said? There are lies, damn lies, and statistics. And I hear a lot of those three every time I turn on the media and the news outlets. The Apostle Paul is calling us to renew our minds that we might discern what the will of God is. It's not just choosing between black and white choices. It's establishing our priorities. It's scheduling our days. It's realizing that maybe some time, extra time with your kids is a little bit more important than going through the drive through at Starbucks. It's realizing that, you know, some things in, in education need to take priority in your family's lives. How can you be a better husband? How can you be a better wife? How can you be a better father? How can you be a better mother? Use discernment daily. You're going to find it in God's will with wisdom in and, and the Proverbs. And so, number three in your outline as we get closer to food, regard the other. Look down at verse three. This is, uh, if you need to highlight a verse, verse three would be a good verse to highlight, at least for me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has Assigned, Bonhoeffer put it this way, he who would learn to serve must first think little of himself. Thomas Akempis said, this is the highest and most profitable lesson in life, to know and to despise ourselves, to have no opinion of ourselves. To think always well and highly of others is great wisdom and perfection. What Paul is calling us to in verse three is a little self-awareness. When we read verse 3, we realize that we are sinners in desperate need of God's grace. We don't look upon ourselves as, as being more special than other people, looking more highly upon ourselves than we do for other people. We think of others as more highly than we think of ourselves. Thomas Akempis Kempis also said this, Never think that you have made any progress until you look upon yourself as inferior to all. Let me ask you a question. Why does God place struggles and hardships in our lives? Difficult circumstances. Do you think maybe there's something in verse three that would explain that? Maybe he's given us a trial, maybe he's given us a, a really difficult situation so that we might learn to think less of ourselves than we currently think. Why did God design this thing called marriage with X and Y chromosomes I don't know if any of you guys are like me and Brandy, but I think a lot differently than Brandy thinks. I have desires that are different than Brandy's desires. I have motives that are different than Brandy's motives. At times, I'm kind of wondering, why did you design it like this, God? It would be a lot better if she just thought exactly like me. Probably because God and Brandy wants me to think less of myself and more of other people? Why do I have kids who desperately and and constantly demand attention from me? Why did I lose that job? Maybe I ought to think less highly of myself than I previously thought. Paul goes on to list uh, seven spiritual gifts in the context. Let me just uh, blaze through these pretty quick here. Verse four. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, There's four sections of your Bible that deal with spiritual gifts. Just think of the twelves and the fours. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. In every single list, the list is different. The spiritual gifts listed are different, which I take to mean that none of them are exhaustive. Uh, All of them are just samplings of the spiritual gifts that God gives to us. But I want to apply this text, and I wish we could spend a little bit more time going into that. Sometime we will. And just talk about God's design for life together. and, And just a couple points to wrap up. Number one, a true church is not a virtual church or an optional church, but it's an essential church and a relational church. The true church of God described in the Old Testament is not virtual. We don't do virtual church because we don't have a virtual Jesus. Jesus was a real person. He met with people face to face. You could touch him, see him. He talked to you. He comforted those who needed comfort. He gave hard truth to those who needed hard truth. He spoke to people. And so, if there's a time to do virtual church, I understand that for a time, but at the end of the day, we don't do virtual church because we don't have a virtual Jesus. We have a Jesus of flesh and blood, and First John says something about that when it opens up in chapter one, right? A church, true church is not a virtual or an optional church, but it's an essential church. And Paul says this, he says we are members of one another. That means that your church is absolutely essential for your spiritual growth. If you consider yourself a Christian and you want to be a growing Christian, you cannot do that apart from committing yourself to a body of Christ, a local body of Christ. It is essential for your spiritual growth to be involved with a local church. Furthermore, none of verses six through eight, everybody wants to know what's the gift of prophecy? What's the gift of speaking in tongues? What's the gift of healing? Has any of that ceased for the day? Is it is it all non cessational up in here? What's going on? Before you, none of verses six through eight matter. None of those questions matter. Until you start practicing verse three. Don't even get there. Just stick with verse three for a while. God is not calling us to a false humility that thinks less of ourselves. He's calling us to think of ourselves less. Philippians 2 is a there's a servants entrance entrance on the ambassador class door. They've been studying through Philippians for quite a while now. Philippians 2 tells us to have a certain mind in us, the mind of Christ. Not merely to look out for our own interests, but to look out for the interests of others. To have this attitude, this mindset in us that was in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took himself completely to the side because of his love for other people. You will experience life together to the fullest when your life reflects that of Christ the clearest. You will experience life together the fullest as a Christian when your life reflects that of the life of Christ the clearest. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and so we humble ourselves and we die to ourselves over and over again. None of verses 6 through 8 can be applied until you apply verse 3. Furthermore, None of verses 3 through 8 can be applied until you apply verses 1 and 2, which means that spiritual gifts cannot rightly be practiced in the body of Christ until Jesus is not just Lord of your Sundays, Lord of your church life, but Lord of your entire life. If you are going to rightfully talk about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ— You first need to make sure that you are wholly surrendered and dedicated to His will over your life and the life of your church. As a church, we cannot utilize the gifts correctly until God has control completely. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is all about. That's what pursuing life together is all about. And once we're committed to verses 1 and 2, this life together thing will take care of itself. And we'll experience the end of Romans chapter 12. I, I think the AC just went off. I've got one more point. Did you hear it? It went off. Troy, he's online. Turn it back, turn it back on. Um, John 10.10 John 10 says this. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have life Abundantly. Uh, New Life Ranch is, is correctly labeled New Life because that's the life that Jesus gives to us. He died for us on the cross that we might do life together in a very specific, concrete way. That we might live without regard to self but with more regard for the other person. That we would start outdoing one another in honor as we're about to read next week. Life abundantly is life together. It's relationally. It's experienced through accountability, through truth and love. It's experienced over coffee. It's experienced over lunches when we need to confess our sins to one another and be encouraged in the faith through one another. Christ died on the cross so that we can experience those types of relationships to give us new life, abundant life in him. And this is way too important to skip over. You cannot be a spiritually mature Christian unless you are doing life with other believers in the context of a local church. That's just the way that God prescribed it. It doesn't matter if your church is 6,000 or six, God calls us to do life together. And it starts with wholly surrendering ourselves to God who wholly gave himself to us and I'm gonna pray so we can eat, all right. Father in heaven, thank you so much for, uh, thank you so much for your word, thank you for uh, the grannies again for coming out here, thank you for the time that we're about to have at this picnic, I pray that you would bless the food that we're about to partake of. We thank you for Harold, for the deacons, thank you for all the ladies in the kitchen that we're serving this morning and even during this service uh, to prepare a great meal for us. I pray that our, our time together would deepen relationships deepen our relationship with you, first and foremost, but also our relationships with one another, that we might experience the abundant life that you have for us. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus on Calvary's cross, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.